Welcome, one and all, to Strange New Worlds, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Healing frequencies are open. The best miracles are born from truth. Strange New Worlds, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 104, Memento Mori, comes to you now via AP350 atmospheric processing device. Pete, here we are traversing the stars only yesterday, talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi, the series, parts one and two, uh, in what has A, been an interesting journey in and of itself, and B, an interesting contrast, his mindset the optimism of Starfleet that we're about to dive into here. Uh, it's just all part of the wonderful pop culture star-laden universe. And on the heels of that, Matt, our Ms. Marvel official preview will hit that podcast feed and the pop culture podcast feed, which again catches everything we do later this week after the special uh, non-Marvel Legends because Ms. Marvel's a new character to the MCU, a special entitled A Fan's Guide to Ms. Marvel uh, that, again, will be up on Wednesday, June 1st. And once that's out, taking that in, of course, we will be giving you that final preview before the series begins streaming a week later on June 8th. Matt, any news around June 8th in these fantastic parts? Uh, on June 8th, or rather June 9th, we'll be going to the Paley Center in New York City uh, to see a presentation about Ms. Marvel, including some of the uh, cast members, Ms. Marvel herself, uh, and I believe a producer or two. So very, very uh, much looking forward to that experience. In the meantime, you could certainly head to our Patreon page on patreon.com slash fantasticgeek. Help us with our bandwidth. Help us with all the costs associated of bringing all this content to you. Star Trek, Star Wars, Marvel, Cinematic Universe, everything in between. Can't contribute right now? Get over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating or review in just a little while longer, all of which help get new listeners and grow the experience so pete having gone round the horn star wars marvel bring it back to star trek here let's get ready for our mission briefing the enterprise is en route to deliver an atmospheric processing upgrade to finibus 3 as security officer laon records a log on stardate 3177.3 Without the part, the air will become unbreathable in a matter of weeks. As they prepare for arrival, the crew pauses to honor Starfleet Remembrance Day. She touches the pin of the SS Puget Sound in a box of mementos in her quarters. Captain Pike makes an announcement about the heavy toll exploration extracts which is why they wear the insignia of past ships they served on together. Chief Kyle greets a science division crewmate. Pike reminds the crew that the sacrifices of others make them grateful to still be on the journey. What timing it is to have Starfleet Remembrance Day, this fictional occurrence happening in the uh, 
uh, in an episode uh, which precedes Memorial Day. Uh, so some some interesting and certainly uh, well-earned uh, honor there. Uh, we, of course, see, as you mentioned, Pete, multiple officers, nay, most of them wearing these round pins. So check one off from your, you know, I saw the preview. What's with the badges above the badges? Um, very good reason here. Um, we move to Hemmer quizzing Uhura about the AP 350 air filter, uh, which a, it's not an air filter. That's an oversimplification, Matt. <laughs> uh, a just feels like techno babble. Plus, you know, reference is also made in the course of the conversation here. Uh, Uhura is doing her uh, rotation through engineering, so the fact that they're hiding, you know, rather important information about this. Uh, shall we say, Pete? I won't call it an air filter anymore. Okay, I'll just call it the AP three fifty or. 350 for short um the fact that they're setting up it's you know super importance to the b plot which then merges with the a plot and leads to victory at the end of the episode you know it's quite subtly seated uh seated here uh, or, those story vegetables in the story appetizer yeah and again i am impressed that they're doing all of you know we're used to big arcs like this across multiple episodes in the more serialized form of storytelling. Same arc, now just tightened down to one episode. The arc of the importance of the AP 350 air filter slash uh, all the wonderful things that it does, uh, which, of course, Uhura has read about. Uh, she, in fact, is enjoying her engineering rotation. She notes that both engineering and communications are about having unrelated systems communicate. Uh, which should impress Hammer. Maybe it does deep down in his uh, icy Enar heart, but he says he, he will need to be more impressed. Uh, and she needs to do better than to theorize. La'an arrives at the bridge, and number one notices she's not wearing a pin. Not a big deal, she says, and Una definitely knows how she feels about it. Past is the past. There's no point in looking back, she says. La'an is particularly resistant to the ideal of psychological therapy as number one leaves her at her station. Lieutenant Ortegas announces they've arrived in orbit, but where's the welcome wagon? Finibus 3 is still not responding to any hails. Their last transmission was logged two days ago. Spock has been monitoring radio wave interference from a large brown dwarf nearby but the colony's communication satellite has been destroyed. Pike orders it reported Starfleet and protocol now dictates they investigate. Again, I will say it's a lot of Star Trek techno babble from other episodes to say, you know, there's interference from the space thing that's over there. And it's always used very nicely. Uh, the fact that the brown dwarf becomes critically important in the second I was going to say second half, you know, for most of the episode, the brown dwarf is critical to the construct of this episode. Again, it's a really nice use here. Uh, in terms of this investigation, uh, Pike, of course, is going to stay topside and number one grabs La'an and others. We see the, the unnamed others. Uh, they beam down. Uh, definitely no life signs. La'an reading the scene. There are blast marks and such. Um, they get they get jump scared by a dog who I guess they just leave there. So maybe a little half a point off there would have been nice if somebody said, and Rover has made it up to Ensign, you know, Smith's room and so forth. Um, 
a bit more seriously. They find a central area with blood marks, the bodies having been dragged there, but signs of a massacre, but no bodies. Um, meanwhile, uh, on the Enterprise, an unidentified ship pops into the view screen, kind of metaphorically turning the corner. Um, and I like that Pike immediately says, hey, uh, number one, there's an issue here. There's a, an unidentified ship. We're bringing you back. You know, pause, pause. They have been brought back up. Like, yes, that's how it should be. And probably there's many Star Treks where they do that, but we see it from the away team's point of view. Uh, with the transporter, it's that quickly to say something's weird. Come home. Pause, pause. They're home. The tension mounting here between not getting the welcome wagon, going down to the surface, seeing what they do, not immediately getting through to this other ship, or even Matt, once uh, their hail is responded to from this ship with no Federation badges and it shields up uh, with multiple life forms, uh, not trusting immediately Professor Sandy of Finibus 3, who's wearing a sling that to me, I'm like, am I looking at uh, the Gorn attempting to be human? Yeah, or a, a, a hollow this or that the other. Um, we're told that most of the people on the ship are injured. Okay, we'll beam you over. Uh, you can't uh, due to the nature of the vessel. It's heavily shielded and such and so forth. Um, love that I love that there's the story solution brought over from the you know discovery I don't, I don't mean to say discovery era but you know this deep space transport tube when it was deployed in Star Trek Discovery it was like oh this actually makes a lot of sense um, because you have a lot of people and you might have a ship pull on up next to it and if you're beaming out six at a time uh, hey they've improved Star Trek and here that as a story tool uh is there to again make sense they run the tube over references made by the survivors there was a, a blast from the sky a ringing sound uh spock notes there there really is nobody else around here on uh scanners sensors as he says uh and um pike ultimately gets that tube extended and we see the wounded making their way onto the Enterprise. Pete was only on second view. I was like, they're all so hurt that none of them have any giddy up to their step, uh, which is important for the events that are going to be happening shortly. I still thought when I first watched it, like, all right, is this some kind of infiltration maneuver? They seem like overtly slow in being able to do that. Um Laon says that the ringing could have been an ultrasonic cannon. Uh, the recollection of rain on fire to number one sounds like suborbital bombardment. Uh, but Laon's gut is telling her something's wrong when young Fig runs past her saying the monsters are coming and they need to hide. Fig's mother comforts her by telling her monsters aren't real. Laon inquires about these monsters, and Fig says they took her father. She didn't see anything, but heard clucking noises, which causes Lon to contact the bridge to scan the area for polarized electromagnetic signatures. Spock locates a hologram near the second moon. Lon demands they raise shields, and Pike agrees, but Ortega says they can't because of the transport tube. Laon looks out the tube and sees a ship 
twirling towards them. Number one tells her to move, but she says it's the Gorn as the ship opens fire and destroys the cargo vessel. I'll add as well this wonderful Anson Mount moment. He pauses, kind of understanding the trap that they're in, understanding in real time what what has happened here. Uh, In the credits, we see that the episode is written by Davey Perez and Bo DeMeo, directed by Dan Liu. We come out of the credits to uh, flashbacks uh, of someone La'an knows, we'll find out later, it's her brother. Um, And then in the present time, she's being scanned. Chapel is helping one wounded person while telling La'an that she's next. We see that some are hurt, some are, are at risk of dying. Number one is wounded badly and sends La'an to the bridge. Uh, they'll need her, you know, as the tactical officer. Once again, we have a situation where we're highlighting the, you know, the, the, the main crew member of the week and the circumstances bring them to the front here. On the bridge, we're told that warp is down. Uh, Hammer is going to secure the processor first um, because of its, its delicate nature and so forth. Uh, the ship is in bad shape, and as La'an makes it to the bridge, she's almost ordering Captain Pike. Um, she points out that all of this has been a trap, uh, and since the ship is too damaged to fight, they need to run. Uh, to fight would wear them out. It's a classic Gorn move. Yes, uh, baiting them here, setting the trap with the colonists. Pike says confirmed sightings are rare and they've never ventured into Federation space. Um, But uh, with this tactic to run down and to use up their resources, uh, Pike agrees that they retreat. Um, They have to find cover and level the playing field at navigation. Spock says the Brown dwarf is 200 million kilometers away, but tethered in orbit to a black hole with shields at 40%. He adds Enterprise will need to lower its electrical output around it and they will lose sensors, optics, long-range communications, and the shields. Pike says, perfect, since anything following them will suffer the same conditions. As acting number one again, Lon concurs. Ortegas takes them at full impulse to a giant gas cloud of death. Pete, if... That wasn't enough. The fight continues to follow them. A quite good, albeit brief, space battle. A good, you know, good visibility of seeing uh, the ship taking hits on the bridge. Spock notes they've been hit here. They've been hit there. They've also been hit in the main cargo bay. Pete, you might recall that that's a spot where the story has been already. Uh, we cut to Uhura and Hemmer. Uh, she's been knocked out, but is okay. Uh, Hemmer appears to be pinned more under a large cargo box than I think he ultimately is. So I don't know whether that's a criticism or a compliment. Um, I, I also am just somewhat tangentially, the cargo box seems to have a big snowflake yes. uh, thing on it. So I <laughs> guess it's cold. It, yeah. Like <laughs> big it, cold thing on his right hand. <laughs> ice cream sandwiches have done it yet again. Ah, so dangerous. Um, What's heavier, Matt? Uh, a ton of an AP 350 or a ton of ice cream sandwiches? Uh, a ton of ice cream sandwiches because they will stay with you long after <laughs> the AP 350 has been delivered. Um, ultimately, Hemmer's hand is smashed. Uh, 
they could just leave. But wait, the door is blocked. Um, there's also a new problem. The 350 unit is overloading, and to lose it uh, would result in an atomic blast that would take out the ship. Uh, what stakes in the moment? Uh, also, story saving uh, for later on. Uh, we go to the conference room where it's a little hot. Pete, that's not because of all the beautiful people in there, okay? Climate controls are down. Uh, I love that Mbenga is, uh, you know, Skyping in from, from sick bay, something that we have seen before all the way back to classic track, but great use of the big video wall there. Um, they cannot get anyone better in sick bay. They can just stabilize. It's just a triage situation due to systems being down. Nine people are dead. Uh, and there are no more supplies. All have been used up and they're not getting more, uh, what with replicators being down, uh, it's been reported that Una is on her way to sick bay, but she says she's fine. And Mbenga hits the end of his portion of the scene as he says, we do need more supplies somehow. Number one stumbles into sick bay and, uh, chapel says her wounds are deep. They can't power up the surgery bays. Mbenga recalls chapel has an interest in archeological medicine. And he asks, how good she is at sewing aces. What a wonder it is to behold here and in a little bit, the two kind of Majel Barrett originated characters interacting. There, there, there's something of Majel Barrett's spirit in number one, as we see now, there's something in Majel Barrett's spirit in chapel as we see her now. And it's just, I don't know, to me, it was just, it was just, just very satisfying. Uh, we go we back. We need to... an episode called Majel in which Chapel Number One and the computer have a big scene. Absolutely. Uh, in the conference room, um, we're told that there's only one photon torpedo left. I, I guess I won't speculate, Pete, how one loses photon torpedoes without them blowing up the ship. Maybe that's a dumb question. Maybe I don't know unarmed torpedoes on submarines can be clunked into and now they don't work anymore uh, regardless how about this it's one of these things the story told me there's only one left and the ship has yet to blow up so it all worked out i know that much uh, however they can't aim the photon torpedo due to interference from the uh the uh the, the brown dwarf that they are in um and all of this is to fight against the the unseen bogeyman uh the 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 Gorn, if indeed it is them and so forth. La'an says that they're not supernatural, but they are to be feared. The Gorn see humans simply as walking feed bags. References made to uh, all warm-blooded creatures fearing them in a primal sense. You know, the, the fear of lizards and so forth. Um, and it, she notes in, in just a wonderful line, it's not that people have not seen the Gorn before. Many people have seen them. Pete, how's that for story stakes? Oh, human stakes is more like it, Matt. Um, so the, the conversation turning here now uh, that Pike dismisses everybody and asks uh, his acting number one in Laon to stay behind. Um, he's given everybody the note here to be vigilant and creative and they're only going to survive by working together. Remember, he survives, and we know Spock survives, so it's a question of how the other ones will. Um, La'an uh, is asked how she's holding up 
but she says the enemy doesn't care about her feelings, so she doesn't waste time having any. Pike says that her job isn't just about orders, but hope, because belief can be the difference between victory and defeat. She will adjust, but she won't lie. And he asks anything else she can remember from her time with the Gorn. She says the memories are trauma-inhibited as the young man, her brother, appears again. The scene starts out, as you noted, Pete, with you know an inspiring Star Trek captain tells you, believe in yourself and do your best and work together and everything works out. Um, and it feels hollow, a little hollow as presented, in part because I think we're really buying the sense of uh, dread and, 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 and all that that the situation has brought. Um, and again, here it is, the normal, the normal Star Trek situation being, uh, you know, in contrast with the focus on La'an and her particular, you know, the, the cloud over her head and all of that. Uh, but as the story continues, we go back to the cargo bay. Um, Hemmer notes that an engineer has two things, his mind and his hands, and his hands aren't working. Thus, he has lost his tools. Uh, we have the AP-350 coolant system still offline. Uh, Hemmer winces in pain. Uh, however, the 350 needs attention now. Uhura uh, will push the buttons for him. Uh, he essentially can be the engineering mind. She the hands. They could be a team. Hemmer notes that he isn't fond of teams. Uh, and Hemmer has her shut off the safety overrides, which itself is a two-handed job. Preventing the core from getting above 110 degrees, which seemed like not a really high temperature. <laughs> Maybe it's on another scale. Oh, oh it's undoubtedly. It's the Star Trek future. Everybody's using Celsius. Okay. All right. Because, man, that thing had never to survive in, like, Arizona, right? <laughs> Back on the bridge, Spock shows Pike program Vinci 7 in which he proposes they use the navigation systems to turn a compass into a radar. Pike orders him to do it. Ortegas detects a signal, which Spock says matches the side, size and speed of the ship that attacked them. The ETA is one minute, and it's unknown if they can see them. They pass by after a gloriously tense couple moments there, but Laon says they won't stop looking. Pike orders Zuniga to arm the last torpedo. Spock reminds him if he fires it, the guidance system won't work, but Pike plans to drop it on them manually. Ortegas maneuvers the Enterprise into position right in front of the torpedo bay. Uh, and Pike deploys the torpedo. Spock reports the signal is gone and the enemy ship destroyed, but their relief is short-lived as three more ships arrive. Pike says they sacrificed a ship just to get their location. Two ships and a much bigger blip, which looks like a claw, move through the gas. I love that this is the scene where, you know, there's a brown dwarf that has whatever differing layers of density or something, something. And, oh, the systems are out, something, something. Now we're going to use the metaphorical compass into a radar that pings and we're at different density levels. And, oh, my goodness, we've been slowly backing into a submarine episode the entire time. Um, and in a way that feels 
super authentic and super of Star Trek and also super of the submarine subgenre. Um, but Can you we, say submarine subgenre? <laughs> Uh, well, Pete, I was wondering: Is there are there enough submarine? Listen, I happen to be a big fan of submarine films. Um, I don't know if there's enough to call them their own genre, um, but but I do agree with you. the The sub sub genre could be somewhat problematic. There, uh, we get an act break, and then we get a recap, which I guess might be a function of the act break, and maybe people have forgotten. I, I don't know. Uh, it's three on one. We are outgunned. Uh, Spock knows that they can't go further into the brown dwarf as they'll be destroyed. Uh, Pike thanks him for a great idea. We're going to go deeper. Uh, many people are surprised. Wait, didn't you hear you can't do that? Uh, Pike believes in the Enterprise. The ship will handle the dive, uh, and perhaps the Gorn won't. Uh, there's the, uh, you know, there's Ortegas dryly noting, dive, dive, dive. And I'm sitting there saying, it really is a submarine episode. <laughs> Uh, Pete, take us to sick bay where I'm sure everything is great. Well, just before that, though, immediate evacuation of all decks below 20 is ordered. Uh, Benga sews number one up as Chapel holds the light and the Enterprise groans from the increasing pressure. Uhura's never heard a ship make that sound before, but Hammer tells her to keep her focus and pick up the pace diagnostics are offline he tells her to hold her hand out and tell him what she feels she gets burned but he didn't tell her to touch them the malfunctioning rods should be cool and she should make sure before she removes them she lifts one out and reconfigures the host platform now they can get started (laughs) on the bridge we have all the submarine tropes here okay creaks from the superstructure while people look around in fear uh references made to a buckling uh effect starting to happen in the lower decks but evacuations aren't complete oh man pete i hope it's not like in crimson tide where they got to close the thing and leave people on the other side of it wait a minute a pressure collapse could take out the entire ship if you don't close bulkheads pike orders them sealed uh oh sacrifice time we have mr kyle who saves a man a wounded man they're gonna get science division crew made from before oh, is it, pete even he has his own little story arc um with the bulkhead closing the wounded guy pushes kyle through you know kind of indiana jones the doors closing style uh with that the man is gone uh spock back up on the bridge calls it a logical choice for pike it doesn't feel that way and spock notes uh that both are true for the same reason Pike values life. Lon says they're approaching critical hull failure, and Spock adds, if the antimatter chambers become compromised, there will be no ship left to save. Pike orders battle stations and Ortegas to execute a full stop. One ship passes by them and is crushed by the increasing pressure. Pike calling to get ready for close quarters was setting me up maybe for handheld combat, um, which we didn't get. So maybe my little note might be, let's maybe edit around the get ready for close quarters uh, line. Um, Regardless, um, with that Gorn ship crushed, as you mentioned, Pete, uh, he repeats what was told to him that the Gorn were relentless. La'an sees that he has used this 
to exploit a weakness in the Gorn. We go back to sickbay where Ensign Christina is being patched up. Uh, we have Chapel uh, checking in on the Mbenga number one situation. Uh, she's got one more fragment left in her gut, but it's a biggie. She'll be bleeding a lot as a result. Uh, luckily, there's one plasma pack left. Um, she could be sedated for this, or if she wants, she could wait for systems to come back online. Who knows uh, when that will be? Uh, it also could lead to septic shock, which is like giving birth out of your mouth. Oh, gross. <laughs> Who says that? Chapel does. Uh, so with that, okay, knock me out. We're going to do the surgery, but... There's another officer who needs the plasma. Uh, number one uh, orders her uh, her plasma given over. Pete, I'm not going to quibble about the notion that superior officers don't have what's actually called positional authority, i.e. a captain cannot order a chief engineer to let the captain play naked in the warp core because pr- uh, positional authority. But hey, TV. So Mbenga hands the plasma over to the other person because number one says so. It's what you got to do in the situation. Pike narrates a supplemental log detailing three civilians and seven crew have died. The newest obstacle being the brown dwarf pulling, uh, being pulled inside the black hole. Uh, they can't pop their heads up to see if it's clear. And without long range communication, they can't send a probe. They have one hour and 42 minutes and 28 seconds of time left. La'an volunteers to go in a shuttle and Spock will be back up. Pike gives them the Galileo with orders to be back in a half hour, no matter what. Pete, it's the Galileo too, if you will. I feel like I we could punch the same thing in my notes. I feel like we could punch that title up, maybe that concept a little bit better. I don't know. Let's let's keep that one in the fire. Uh, from the shuttle, uh, we see that the Gorn ships are flashing sensor lights on each other. What is that? Laon says it's not a scan. It's something else. Uh, she has seen this before on the SS Puget Sound, her colony ship. Uh, I guess technically it was after the ship was captured and whatnot. But we understand from where she's coming. Uh, what she does remember is bits and pieces. Uh, Spock notes that the mind can put up a wall to protect itself. Uh, still, Laon feels that there's something in there. She's heard about what Vulcans can do, although Spock says that uh, a mind meld is not a shortcut to fixing mental trauma. Uh, they will mind meld. However, Pete, I know that this will not be memorable for Spock because uh, come the TOS episode, Dagger of the Mind, he claims he's never done this with a human before. So it's not really that memorable what's about to happen. Unless, Matt, Lon secretly non-human. Uh, that would work too. I think in all seriousness, or first of all, I kind of could care less that this has led to a minor continuity error currently. If we get some more Laon stuff to wipe it away, that's fine. I would also say, how about this? I mean, again, A, they don't need to explain the continuity error. And if it's not Laon that's going to wipe it away, that's fine too. Can I put in the little caveat though, since this mind meld yields very personal, very secret information about Spock, might his official position be that this never happened? Uh, that, you, you just yeah. completely in the Fantastic Geek writer's room solved it. Yeah. And emotionally it works and you don't need to spend. And, and it would be dumb, quite frankly, for him to say, and I will pretend this never happened. Like, we don't need. Pete, what is this? 
Obi-Wan saying, Anakin, you'll be the death of me. Like, we don't need to be that on the nose. <laughs> um, so they initiate the mind meld here. And they walk through her memories of the Gorn breeding planet where they were brought as food for the hatchlings. Her mind is resisting because of her fear, but she doesn't want to stop because they need to know. She and the young man she's been seeing run from the Gorn. He gives her a translation of the lights and tells her to run and not look back. The uh, the notes there uh, with a Morse code style alphabet uh, sketched out and the phrases search, hunt, and weak all visible. Um, Spock says that Laon's subconscious setting a boundary after her brother showed her how to read the lights. Spock is overheard speaking Vulcan. And then Michael Burnham tells her brother she loves him too. Because Lon notes, she lo he lost someone too. He had a sister, but Starfleet records don't show it. She sacrificed herself for him too. And Spock thinks they should end the mind melt. Back on the shuttle proper. Uh, of course, their bodies have been there while their minds melted. Uh, Laon has an idea. We jump into that idea. The shuttle... I think I understand the geography of this, Pete. The shuttle sneaks to buy the smaller ship. Um, it's a risky plan. There's value to those that survive. Laon signals to the big ship. The humans have taken over the small ship. So I'm, I guess I'm a little unclear. Are they doing it like over the shoulder of the smaller ship? Are they pretending to be the other small ship? Regard Again, the geography I'm a little unclear on, even after multiple views. I do know this, the notion that the weak quote-unquote, the weak Gorn on the smaller ship, that, that they have lost the ship, uh, you know, they, they cull the weak and so forth, and the big ship blasts away the smaller one. Uhura reboots the AP-350 for the win as Hemmer nods off from the pain. She gets him talking about his Enar heritage in Starfleet. Uh, she thought they were all pacifists, and he actually wanted to be a botanist because of his love of flora. Uh, he will not fight for Starfleet, but will for its ideals. Just then, a new alarm blares, and Hemmer says the Matrix exceeded critical limits before they could repair it. Their only option now is to vent the bay into space. But wait, they're in there too. Uh, I would also agree that um, the Matrix exceeded its limits, and maybe that Matrix <laughs> number four was not uh, was not necessary. I, that's perhaps the meta commentary, or they're just using sci-fi words. I don't know. Uh, Hemmer reports all of this to the bridge uh, just as Spock and Laon return to the bridge. Uh, parallel to this, the black hole is taking away more and more of their cover. It seems that space wants them dead. Uh, Pike says maybe we could lean into that. Uh, could the black hole be used as a slingshot? Uh, Pete, we're all Star Trek fans. We know black holes can be used as slingshots, no problem. The fact that they don't slingshot to, you know, circa 1997 or something, that's the real miracle here. Uh, could the redshift that occurs be used to hide the ship? Love the scientific explanation here of what redshift is and how 
their position will not be accurately observed from the Gorn ship. Um, so the plan is this. They're going to slingshot out. However, there needs to be some sort of accounting for the Enterprise. The AP-350 is going to be vented. That explosion will be used as cover. Uh, Pike believes in the Enterprise. La'an, right? Oh, yes, La'an sort of agrees, although Christina Chong being you know, a very, very talented actress, there's like a little hesitation there with like, yes, I believe in the Enterprise too, Captain. Um, and with that, Pete, it's time for Hemmer and Uhura to put on those AV suits and buckle down. Yes, to use the AP-350 as a decoy like snakes, ducks, or possums. Hemmer commits it to the cosmos and plans to give Uhura high marks as they hook themselves into the floor. He adds that the Enar believe death only comes once they have fulfilled their purpose. His was to fix what was broken. Uh, Uhura says he could throw in teaching, maybe even being inspiring. Uh, he asks her her purpose, and she doesn't know yet. I sure hope, Matt, she gets to find her purpose at some point. This season would be nice. Uh, back to the bridge, it's go time, and uh, Ortega's notes, if this all works, they're going to call this the Pike Maneuver. Uh, Pike uh, first, though, gives uh, an all call to everybody. Uh, there's a stirring speech about seeking the unknown and uh, intersecting with challenges and fears, uh, but we do not back down. Today will not be the final mission, but instead our finest hour. Uh, and with that, they push the go button. The Enterprise emerges and the Gorn give chase as they head toward the black hole's accretion disk. Uh, they vent the hold, ejecting the AP-350, which blows up, satisfying the Gorn vessel that warps off, allowing the Enterprise to leave unaccosted. Lon reports they've gone. Pike contacts the main cargo bay where there's no answer Uhura reports that they're still there to his great relief. Pike says this is a miracle, but Laon asks about next time. And Pike says they won't catch them. The Gorn won't catch them by surprise. They will be ready. I think I know what that next time might be. Uh, in sick bay, number one awakes. There's a, uh, there has been the successful surgery. Uh, she sees that she has an IV in her arm, uh, which is joining her to Mbenga. Uh, in La'an's quarters, uh, she now puts on the Puget Sound uh, pin, and in uh, her personal log reflects on the loss of seven crew members. Uh, she and Pike share a moment, and it is noted that overall, though, the crew survived. And the episode kind of abruptly comes to an end. With that incoming threat analysis, Pete, let's talk about the things that made this episode so tense. Let's start with the Gorn. To have them teased in the series premiere, pivotal to the backstory of La'an, you knew when you got an individual episode that it'd be a safe bet that this would come back around. You know, we've had the exploratory missions to this point uh, here the, the old trope of the supply mission 
turns into the submarine battle. And, you know, while we didn't get to see the Gorn, that's all because it's predicated on that original series episode where uh, Kirk meets the uh, the alien captain uh, on the surface. So they maintain that and can still have this encounter. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think there's a better version where you see the Gorn irrespective of whether you're saving it for, you know, kind of full integration into the TOS episode or not. I think just the faceless enemy that lets the submarine episode be more submarine, not less. Um, and the fact that you then are kind of, you're, you're having your cake and eating it too, in terms of it's a Gorn encounter, but not the Gorn encounter and so forth. It just, it just works. Uh, Pete, the other major threat in this episode is that of the, the Brown dwarf, uh, and the, the connected black hole, uh, a reminder that space is trying to kill you. Yeah. And both in the quippy way that Ortegas sells it as well as the science that Spock spouts, the, the way to understand the, the pressure they face, the gravity, the illusions it creates. And, you know, we've used nebulae to fight battles. I don't remember one being done around these particular astro uh, physical phenomenon, but made for uh, interesting and compelling uh, circumstances. Let's use our long-range sensors to scan ahead for some theories. And Pete, this isn't maybe quite a theory, but I think this is the best place to put it. I was struck watching kenobi and there's the line you know uh we lost it's over and and that is a pessimism that is appropriate to the you know where they're they are at in the timeline and where obi-wan kenobi is at and so forth uh, and then in this episode there's pike's you know high-flying optimism even when it's kind of like hey sometimes you need to tell truth-based fibs to the crew to have them find that optimism on their own and i just I think of what's ahead in our world. I think of what's ahead in the next month, probably. I think of how there's going to be setbacks sometimes and how it's okay to feel like Obi-Wan when you're down, but it's best to, after your moment, don't spend 10 years in the desert. Mm -hmm. Instead, think of Pike, think of Star Trek and say, okay, we had the loss. Now what do we do to fix it? What do we do to improve things? What do we do to work together? Because... As schmaltzy as it might seem, it really, really is the truth. And, you know, the optimism that Pike is displaying in light of what he personally knows about his own future, you know, which they didn't need to reference in this episode. It's, you know, the, the fault of Batman every time we've got to watch his parents die, right? That's why he's so moody and everything. Um we we don't need to when pike references this flash to what he knows about his future um he is embracing and living that optimism for them 
you know, this all built around the construction that of this Starfleet Remembrance Day and the number of these pins here referencing ships, vessels that we're aware of, you know, whether it's the Discovery or the Shenzhou um, or even uh, the Farragut, the Yangji. Uh, there's even a USS Angelou in there. Yeah, and I think that part of what any of these popular properties has to uh, wrestle with long term is that, gee whiz, Alfred never does get killed off, and that never has an effect on Batman, and on and on and on. Um, similarly, yes, we've had you know the, the Klingon War and all of that that's in recent memory for these uh, officers on the Enterprise. Um but this is a way to say, let's not forget people have given the ultimate, you know, they've paid the ultimate price, uh, just not usually around our shows, just not usually our heroes, just not usually our hero ships and so forth. Um, and I think that's about the best you can do because I, I don't relish the notion of better learning this episode or better learning this lesson rather uh, with an episode where, you know, this is where La'an gets killed off or something like that. I, I I, I don't quite need that out of my Star Trek. The number of discovery references in this episode, what first the uh, pin and then later the transport tubes first seen used um, in the second season finale. And then the um, obvious reference to what happened to Spock's sister, Michael Burnham and that, that's sealed off from Starfleet records on now a keeper of that secret. Yeah. And again, I love that they're using what was a very sensible story tool in discovery. Uh, and one that makes a ton of sense again, to the point where you go, how did Star Trek never dream this up before? Oh wait, it would have been prohibitively expensive um, to do this sort of thing, let alone how often is it that there's another ship coming to the rescue to rescue the main ship in a Star Trek show, you know, but you use it there. And then to have that as a, a logical bonus, a logical piece of technology to help people get on and off the ship and to then further turn it into a story minus uh, a benefit to the story, but a minus for our, for our heroes and so forth. You know, that's a, it's just great. It's great that they have people, in the overall current Star Trek who know of such things and who are using these different pieces and so forth. Uh, Pete, on the topic of La'an, I know this is like the La'an episode. I felt like because of the nature of how we got her backstory, um, I don't, I still don't know her as well as Cadet Uhura. Uh, and even though I know a whole lot about Uhura after this point in the timeline, you know, we got so much, the family, the parents, you know, and so forth. At a certain point, does this show circle back and do the second La'an episode, the second Uhura episode, and so forth? I mean, like I've said before, you get those first seven episodes and we're over the hump now in terms of doing that and baking in the character. Um, you know, some we're going to spend more time with others than with others. Uh, they'll touch on all, I'm sure. Uh, but, you know, then it's a question of 
much like your other Star Trek series, Matt, you know, who does the writer's room favor? How do they go about it? Um, and I think Lon has been a favorite both of the show and of the viewers early on. So Pete, let me get you on the record here. Is there a, not even is there, Pete, will there be, look into the future, will <laughs> Strange New Worlds meet the Gorn again, whether it's just ship to ship, whether we get the suit and then it's, we shall never speak of this because this too is classified just like the other thing that was classified. Will we see the Gorn again in this show? Would you like to know when? Sure. I'm not telling you. Oh. <laughs> uh, Pete, what theories do you have? Uh, this notion of Hemmer's pacifism is an interesting one. And I love the distinction made. It's not that you don't fight. Uh, it's the active protection of all living things in the universe and another way to approach that. I mean, listen, not going to go and, and bring in the real world to, to bum out our aspirational future in which we've eliminated war and poverty and hunger and disease. Um, but the idea of doing what's right of go about going about it in a way that benefits all instead of just some, I think maybe has never been needed more. I think too, one can squint a little bit and say, could I imagine that Starfleet doesn't require out of every officer, you know, basic weapons training and things of that sort? Or can I imagine that you can get a, you can get a waiver? I, I would, I guess my preference would be members of the armed services in this country don't have a waiver. So if there's a worst case scenario, they're, they're ready to respond in the moment. Um, but that's not where this story is. The story is, as you said, Pete, the aspirational Star Trek future. If you want to tell me that a very talented engineer is not prepared to pick up a phaser rifle, but is prepared to uh, help power the ship that will explore and uh, spread togetherness and safety and well-being uh, throughout the galaxy, that makes a ton of sense. These new hunting grounds that Laon referred to, the Gorn staking out, the, the never having gone into Federation space. We know that in the original series, again, the episode Arena, Kirk meeting one on the surface of a planet right there in front of the Vasquez rocks. Um, so, yeah, it's going to happen. Uh I'll, I'll let you find out when. Ooh, exciting stuff. With that, let's head to Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. We start out, Pete, with our Twitter poll in which uh, respondents were asked how many pings they would give this episode. Uh, we'll start from the bottom up. One ping only, uh, in which I use, Pete, a red circle emoji and a uh, Halloween, a jack-o'-lantern emoji. I was trying to evoke what? Red October, Red October right <laughs> on for Red October that got 10% that's the that goes to show you Pete that statistical analysis can now prove that four out of the 40 people who voted in our poll um, look for hashtag Star Trek or hashtag Star Trek Strange New Worlds on a Thursday or a Friday 
and put the lowest possible vote. And they are hashtag keyboard warriors who have uh, successfully uh, brought down the whole poll. Because let me tell you how the rest of it went. Two pings only got 0%. Three pings only got 7.5%. And four pings only got 82.5%. So, oh man, Pete, they somehow made the highest flyers only give 82% the four, which is a super high number for our little corner of, you know, pop culture polls and people respond and all that. So congrats, Pete. They mission accomplished, I guess. We did it. <laughs> From the people who replied, uh, here's what some of them had to say. JT Adkins, JTA is me. I've watched over 800 episodes of Star Trek and I have never lolled at an opening Stardate reference until now. In the <laughs> 3000s now, they're really leaning to the TOS random dates and I say huzzah. Loved this submarine episode, exquisitely tense, while also having great character moments. Also, Ortegas took the dive, dive, dive right out of my mouth. Four pings only, indeed. Next, James the Sagacious, Big Killin on Twitter. This show is just so perfectly balanced. It feels like we get 30 minutes with every character. It's such a great mix of everything uh, that's come before it, but with its, uh, with a style all its own. I really want the lower deck show reference in that uh, bulk had seen uh pete who knows season three which probably is coming out in august maybe there is some sort of you know like and don't forget old jimmy bob the scientist who died on the enterprise back in 2256 anyhow andre yeager dr polo 1983 says i uh, loved how they were basically celebrating memorial day on this episode perfect timing mm-hmm. another character-centric episode concentrating on la'an Every, uh, episode had a real Hunt for Red October feel with all the submarine references. The brilliant writing continues and the acting continues to shine as well. Pike, Spock, and La'an all did an excellent job. I'm really digging this show. Uh, next, Pete, we hear from KCLYLE1 on Twitter who has changed the, uh, the, the rest of the Twitter moniker to Strange New Tweeter. Uh, if you can't say anything else positive about these P-plus Trek shows, you have to admit that they are visually stunning. Loving the crew interactions and everything about Pike. Now that we've seen some of the newer characters, I want to know where they are in uh, TOS and Season 1 of Disco. Uh, next, Pete, we hear from Single Since Obama. That's uh, Kylie G328. Another great episode and a nice way to use more of the characters this week. And that handsome mount sure can deliver a rousing speech. And, uh, and he got two in this episode. <laughs> Set phasers to Zaddy. Uh, what i'm really loving is how much uhura we are getting i love seeing how this young woman became the woman we all have known and loved for decades and hemmer is is simply the man uh pete i think i'm going to remember for quite some time set phasers to zaddy uh, i believe that's when the phaser overloads and blows up right (laughs) because it's that that's when it gets so hot that it just can't (laughs) handle itself and you know boom We hear from Rose Ferry, Anna Rose584. The Gorn bring back memories of the Herogen and Voyager. Will we eventually see the Gorn? I'm guessing we will. Already imagining what they might look like. Appreciate all you do for us. Next, uh, Mike Carrier. That's Mike in Cleave66. It's just my opinion, but I'm getting a very, very Rogue One vibe from Strange New Worlds. Personally, I'm starting to brace myself for some tragic endings for characters I'm starting to fall in love with. Pete, that's a good reminder that we don't have forward-looking trajectory. Uh, you know, let's say once we get to the Captain Kirk era, whenever that begins, because it's not just 2266. He had been there 
prior to the first episode, blah, blah, blah. But we don't have forward-looking trajectory for, let's see, Hammer, number one. Uh, Chapel's going to be okay. Mbenga's going to be okay. Uh, Ortega's, question mark there. I'm probably missing somebody there in the mix here, but it is true that there's story space to lose some of these people, which I don't think anyone wants, but sort of Damocles over our heads and so forth. Absolutely. I mean, I look forward to Captain Ortegas, Captain number one on other ships explored at some point. Unless they die. Uh, Jackie Wolf, that's at Jackie Wolf on Twitter, says, My only complaint with this episode is that I spent the entire episode worrying about the dog from the opening scene. Oh, is <laughs> clap emoji the dog okay? Captain Pike needs a Porthos. We have oh, gosh, many. Yes. We have many different types of villains in Star Trek. Some are scary because they speak to our deepest, darkest fears as humans. I'm thinking of the Borg that take away individuality and free will. Uh, then there are villains where little is known about them. But we, what we do know is terrifying. I think it was a good move to maintain the mystery of the Gorn for a little while longer. I keep imagining what today's version of the 1960s guy in a lizard costume Gorn would look like. The showrunners took notice of the popularity of Disco's Jet Reno and gave us another gorgeous, brilliant, sassy character in Erica Ortegas. My resolve to grow up my hair fades a little every time I see her amazing haircut. Uh, Pete, I'll pause Jackie's words for a moment to just repeat what we said based on the uh, being at the series premiere. That haircut is sharp in person. I felt like, and I was just about at arm's length, that had I asked, hey, could I... I touch the back there that it would cut my finger. That's how sharp it is. Okay. And I could never do that with a pair of clippers, uh, to somebody else or to myself. So, you know, what an outstanding job here on, uh, Melissa Navia. Keep going with that tight fade. Uh, back to Jackie's words. Lastly, I need to say how much I appreciate the scene with Spock and La'an where Spock seeks consent to continue with the mind meld. It was very brief, uh, but an important moment. I'm glad it was included. I'm glad my two boys have role models like Spock. Uh, replying to this conversation, Spider-Ham Lincoln says that CGI Gorn did appear in the two-part Mirror Universe uh, Enterprise episodes, uh, which uh, Jackie says that she had forgotten about. Pete, my memory is that the CGI is not great, and that's not a slam. It's just early 2000s. TV budget CG for the Gorn, not amazing. Yeah, they look like dinosaurs. And, you know, coming off the original series appearance and then, uh, you know, what you had there, that I reflect on the dinosaur bounty hunter we saw in episode two, part two of uh, Obi-Wan. Um, practical, probably more the way to go. When? they show us the Gorn on this show, I think it'll be fully up to the standards. Pete, for this next tweet, as soon as I heard the star date, when I was watching the episode Thursday afternoon, I thought of Spider-Ham Lincoln, and here we now hear from Spider-Ham Lincoln, Tess LC139, Stardate 3177.3. Okay, they're just trolling us, I guess, but my logical, <laughs> order-minded brain doesn't care for it. Moving on. This Red October, Mutara Nebula-esque story with TNG Disaster and DS9 Starship Down Undertones was a nice intro to the Gorn. 
for all but La'an and their ship's only presence on screen was a good way to make them much more menacing. Strange New Worlds continues to please, and this episode gave everyone something to do. Though Una sure does seem injury prone. Uh, Strange New Tweeter replies, I love that we didn't see the Gorn get, adds layers of um, menace. And um, with that, Pete, we'll move on to a tweet, series of tweets from Heather Bixler. That's Nerdy Trivia Girl on Twitter. So much to love in this episode. I was emotional pretty much throughout, but especially in the Laon mind meld sequence. I appreciate that after last week's Una reveal this week, we know she's still not Superwoman. Pike's relief when Uhura reports in at the end also struck me as one of the best times seeing a captain react to the near loss of crew members, particularly given the decisions he'd already had to make to get the ship through the crisis. Finally, as other mentioned, others mentioned, keeping the Gorn unseen is a horror trope that worked well. With that, Pete, let's go to the email inbox, and we're going to hear from Stacy. Uh, and Stacy says as follows, uh, and little repetition here for people who listen to our Kenobi podcast, but Stacey says, well, I may be taking a risk by crossing the streams with my comments for Star Wars, uh, Star Trek and Star Wars in the same email. So here's hoping it won't cause any lasting issues regarding Zool and the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. <laughs> uh, onto her Strange New Worlds thoughts. I have so many thoughts I had to watch it twice and take uh, actual notes on paper. Having a Remembrance Day episode going into Memorial Day weekend was a nice touch especially Pike's speech to the crew. I've seen Anson Mount in other stuff, but holy crow, did he kill it in this episode. From that speech in the beginning to hang on, everything's going to be all right, to the people they're rescuing. Uh, Pike trusts his crew, their instincts. When Laon yells, raise shields, he doesn't question it. He knows they know their stuff and lets them do it. And his emotions throughout the episode, his pain at knowing that a member of his crew died because of the decision he made. It's the right one, as Spock points out, but it costs Pike and fuels his determination that no one else will die that day, and that will not be their last mission. And then at the end, when they don't know if Uhura and Hemmer made it, that is how you tell a good story. I know. I know Uhura isn't going to die. She has more to do in this universe. But when the anchors Uhura and Hemmer were strapped to pulled up from the deck, I gasped. I thought, okay, new timeline, one in which Uhura died? Nope, but for a few minutes, they had me. Pike's anguish when he also thought Uhura and Hammer were gone, I felt it. And I felt his relief when Uhura says they're okay. Phew, I cried at that scene at the end, the one at the end where Pike is with the caskets. I saw other people note this on Twitter, but The Hunt for Red October is one of my all-time favorite movies, so all the submarine references were like catnip for me. Uh, quick, but quiet, aye aye skipper, dive dive dive. When the hull was creaking and Uhura said she'd never heard a ship make that sound before, I thought, I have. It sounds like a submarine going deep. Uhura and Hemmer were another good example of what I like so much in current Trek. People working well together. Even though Hemmer doesn't like teams, he has to allow Uhura to do the work he cannot. Hemmer's broken hand and the brown dwarf causing systems issues are perfect examples of what Matt said last week. You can put anyone in a box at any time. Uh, Pete, I'd like to say Stacy's really, I, I like her references here. Um, back to Stacy's words. Why does her have to do something that she isn't qualified uh, to do? Hammer's hand is broken. Why can't crew be beamed out of lower decks so one crew member doesn't die? No power. Why can't superpowered number one save a bunch of people? She's injured and being stitched up by archaeological medicine, no less. That made me laugh. I think Laon's story was handled very well. Her knowledge of the Gorn helped them stay alive and her arc 
through the episode was really good. From the beginning, when she didn't want to talk about her experiences, emotions are not useful, so I don't have them, uh, to Pike talking about her needing to give the crew hope, to asking Spock to help her remember and face what she'd been through. And then Spock's emotion when he ends the mind meld. More tears for me. Okay, it's very late, so I'll conclude this very long missive with a couple of last thoughts. I continue to be blown away by how beautiful this show is and how amazing the acting is. And I think Memento Mori may be as close to a perfect episode as TV as it's possible to get. As always, looking forward to your thoughts. Pete, that from Stacy, a.k.a. Stingray, a.k.a. Trek Girl 88. I mean, each of these first four episodes have been so very different. All illustrate the Star Trek ideas and go about it in, you know, such comfortable familiar ways but updating it you know the the sets are fantastic the costuming the performances everything and uh really interested to see where they take it in the coming weeks well pete i'm interested to see where admiral fred takes things right now Hello, Matt and Pete, and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Strange New Worlds Season 1, Episode 4. Nice episode again with this time Lan as focus character after we had Una and Uhura. I think this concept is very nice. It increases the feeling you have for this show and how you can connect to these characters and not only the primary characters but also the secondaries. I really wonder if the Gorn are going to be the big bads of this first season or of the series as a whole. Of course we know how the Gorn look uh, because we know what happens after this time but uh, if you Take it from this time period, they are very mysterious and the big bads. A little bit like the Reavers in Firefly or the Jemadar in uh, Deep Space Nine. In the beginning nobody knows how they look but they have a reputation and are very frightening. And I wonder if they are going to use that in this series as well. Okay, that will be all. Greetings, Fred from the Netherlands. Pete, Fred, uh, exploring an issue that some other uh, repliers had as well, just this notion of, um, and I'm kind of putting some words in the Fred's mouth here a little bit, but you know, making space the threat, and you're at a point in the timeline where, hey, we have the Gorn, and that's a cool fan callback, but also let's present them in a way so that they are scary. Um you, of course, as he pointed out with Firefly references and Deep Space Nine references and so forth, you could do this in any show. It doesn't need to be the Gorn at this you know, period of time, but you could do this in any show to say we have the new big bad and you can hardly see them. Like it's a great writing tool. You'd think back for, you know, the 50 plus years of Star Trek and the number of species that they've done this with i mean i think of like the brain matt and you know how the the limited interaction there has played out or the erosion maybe even species 8472 so i think there's a space for this and again to maintain that contact that goes on with 
Kirk in that classic episode. Well, Pete, let's keep the hailing frequencies open. How can people be in touch with you on Twitter to talk about what will be next week, the middle of the season? What? It's crazy to think about it. You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R. J K R K E T E L A A R twelve thousand four hundred seventy five followers can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter, it's looking back lost. Do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on fantasticgeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are fantasticgeek as well. But maybe there's more. Facebook.com/slash/fantasticgeek with a ph, all one word, like it today. If you're listening on the pop culture podcast feed, let's see, Ms. Marvel midweek. Kenobi Saturday, Strange New World Sunday. Do I have that right, Pete? You do. Okay. If you're here just for Star Trek, back on Star Trek Sunday next week uh, in what is, uh, I'm assuming, a Spock episode since his name is in the title. No spoilers there, just reasonable assertion. <laughs> With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. The past is the past. There's no point in looking back. <laughs>